perspective is everything. The other night, Wendy and I were driving down Highway 70 toward Marion. It was one of those nights when the moon was absolutely beautiful. I think someone said it was a super moon. It was gorgeous that night. Wendy happened to be on the phone with Amanda Fuller. And so she was talking with Amanda on the, on the phone. And when she was, she said to Amanda, Amanda, you've got to see this moon. And so Amanda uh, is at home. So she steps out, looks up, can't see the moon. Why? Well, Billy and Amanda live in a valley and the moon had not yet risen enough to where that Amanda could see it. So Wendy proceeded to describe to Amanda the beauty of this moon. She even tried to take a couple of pictures, which did it absolutely no justice at all, right? Uh, the thing that uh, is so fascinating about that reality is that though the, uh, the moon was there, Amanda couldn't see it. It didn't negate the fact that it was a beautiful moon shining brightly that night. It was just the reality that from Amanda's perspective, she couldn't see the moon that Wendy could see. I'm speaking to people this morning who, from your perspective, hope seems a distant dream. From your perspective, from your suffering vantage point, you don't feel like you can see beyond today to a brighter tomorrow. You wonder if life will ever get better than it is now. You are so steeped in the midst of the pain of your divorce. You're so steeped in the midst of the physical pain that is a result of the illness that you are battling that you wonder, will things ever get better? Micah 4 is for you. Micah 4 is written to talk about what it looks like to live a hope-filled life. This morning, I have one goal for you, that by the time you leave this place, you will have made up your mind that you will do, as Micah says in verse 5, let's look at it, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. I want to say something to you this morning that in the critical moments of life, you must will what you do not feel. In the critical moments of life, you must will what you do not feel. And Micah makes an I will or a we will statement here. But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Secondly, if you do not know Christ as your Savior this morning, so glad you're here. My desire for you is that by the time I'm finished with this message, you will come to know the hope of all hopes the help of all helps as your personal Savior. Let's look then at three perspectives. Number one, hopeful living sees life as it will be. I love what Micah says, it shall 
come to pass. He speaks with great authority and great assurance of what has not yet to happen. Your belief about the future will determine your attitude about today. Your belief about the future will determine your attitude about today. We'll go to Paul for some support of that statement. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now, it didn't hit me, honestly, until this week, the full import of that statement. Paul is saying, as great and wonderful as Christ is, if Christ's hope is only now, we're still pitiful. That's what he says. If Christ in his coming, if Christ in his incarnation, if Christ in his crucifixion, if Christ in his resurrection only brings hope for this, we are most to be pitied, aren't we? You say, Jerry, how in the world could he say that? Teach school. Be a counselor. Be a doctor. Sit with people whose pain will never go away. If Christ only gives them hope now, if this is all there is, then we are of all people most to be pitied. Hopeful living sees life as it will be. How does Micah describe it? It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. What Micah pictured is what God always intended. You see, I think the best picture of the future is an adequate understanding of the past. You say, what do you mean? We all must go back to the Garden of Eden to discover how God intended it always to be. In the Garden of Eden, God would come and walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. And, and he would spend time with them and commune with him and they with him. There were no weeds in the garden to take care of. There was no sin that, that caused any kind of separation between them and him. It was such an amazing opportunity day in and day out to be with the God they love. Sin interrupted all of that. And just this morning, we've sung amazing songs, haven't we? And yet, did you struggle ever with your mind wandering to here and to there and with all kinds of competing thoughts and ideas and, and, and feelings as you sang this morning? Why? Because of the world in which we live, because of the sinful nature which we have, because of the, uh, the, the enemy which wants to uh, keep us from God as he does. One day that will be no more. One day you will sing Without, without any inhibition. John saw this. John saw it. Now before uh, I tell you, or I share with you what John saw from the book of Revelation, John 
was one of the apostles who was exiled on a little island called Patmos. Tertullian, who came about at 150 uh, AD, writes that before John was exiled there, he was dropped in boiling oil. Talk about perspective. If Tertullian is right, John could easily have spent the rest of his days nursing his scarred skin. He could have spent the rest of his days observing this body that had been maimed because he dared as the last apostle continue to preach. But no, he was on the island of Patmos when God gave him a revelation. He took those scarred hands and wrote it down and it is preserved for us today. And here's what he saw. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Talk about a wedding gift. Talk about a wedding gift, right? Right? God's wedding gift to his bride is a city. This city is no ordinary city. It is 1,400 miles wide, and it is 1,400 miles deep, and it is 1,400 miles high. And as it is described in the book of Revelation, will come down onto the earth, and there will be gates on all sides which will never close, and the people of God will go and come from this renovated, this new earth into this city of God. Oh, Wow. Oh, John, tell us more. Oh, John, with your scarred hands, write down what you see. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. This is what he's always wanted. He wants to hang out with you. He does. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Listen to this. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Oh, just this week, some of you have cried alone in the, uh, the, the quietness of your bedroom. The tears have flowed down your face. Or perhaps you, as parents, have wept over a wandering daughter or a wavered son. Perhaps this week you have been reminded all over again that Christmas will come and go without the son you, lo without the son you lost or the daughter you lost or the mother you loved dearly. But there will come a day when God, who is great and magnificent, will stoop to wipe away every tear from your eyes. I love the tenderness of this. Boy, John knew it, didn't he? If anybody could write this, it was John. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. This morning after the early service, a woman named Wanda, first Sunday here, just driving through, somehow found our church, came in. Came up to me afterwards. She said, 20 years ago, 
on Christmas Eve, I lost a child. She said, I grieved. Oh, I grieved. I grieved greatly. She said, I, I went to counseling and we had a formerly family picture. There was my daughter in that picture and I would look at her and, oh, I missed her. My counselor said, Wanda, if you will just go to that picture and do something for me, just put your finger over her and when you remove it, she'll still be there. And the counselor said, she is not with you, but she's with the Lord. And one day you'll be with her again, and she shed nary a tear in his presence. And she said, I don't know how many times I walked to that picture, and I put my finger over her, and I pull it back, and I'd see her. And I go, she's alive and well. That's our God, amen. amen. That's him. Here we see God. What are they going to do? He's the ultimate teacher. He's the ultimate teacher. It, it says everybody's coming to the mountain when they do to hear him teach. All right, can I pause just to say something? If you want to go read more, if you want to disagree with me, that's fine. People are wrong every day. I'm just kidding. All right, so, so seriously, Randy Alcorn has a book called Heaven. It's about this thick. If you want to read more and you want to dig in deep, it's a lot of stuff don't agree with everything he says. But there's something fascinating here. All right, so the way I grew up with Heaven Preached, I did not want to go. No lie. I'm not lying to you. I was sitting in church and go, eh, that is going to be boring. We're going to float around, kind of bump into some other people, you know. Everybody's just going to be kind of wide-eyed, you know. Hey, good to see you too. Who are you? We wouldn't know each other. It would just be kind of strange, and it freaked me out a tad, no lie. Honest, did. It did. But as I began to read, study, read Alcorn's book, other books, did a whole series on heaven a few years ago as I did that. And then I read this and go, all right, in heaven, Jesus will still teach. You know what that means? In case you think that once you die and go to heaven, you'll know everything, uh-uh, think again. God is way too big for you to figure him out just by your death. No. Do you think Adam and Eve figured God out ever? Even without the, 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 the constraints of sin, I think every day was a new journey, don't you? I think every walk in the garden was like, oh, wow. I think, I think when God left, wow, can you believe this? And they talked together. So, so the nerdy me totally embraces heaven, right? Can't wait to hear him teach. So... New Testament now, when, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? 
Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why didn't you bring him? We sent you to get Jesus. Look at this. The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. Like we went to arrest him and we couldn't. His words captivated us. That's what they're saying. And the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? That was this man, Jesus. Can I say something? If you don't want to know God's ways now, what makes you think you will want to know him then? Let that be a test. If there's not something in you that desires him, if, if you're not hungry, if you're not longing for him now, why, what makes you think heaven's going to be good for you? Perhaps your heaven is only what you will experience here. And Paul says, we ought to pity you if that's the case. And notice the result. I love this picture. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts is spoken. Everybody will do what they should do. This is shalom. This is peace. Hopeful living sees life as it will be. Secondly, hopeful living sees God for who he is. Look at this. They shall sit every man under his vine, his fig. No one shall make them afraid for the mouth of who? The Lord of hosts has spoken. Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. What does that phrase mean? Hosts refers to all the hosts of angels. All right, angels good, angels bad. Angels who didn't fall and angels who did. Those are hosts. He's Lord of them all. Uh, in order for them to do anything, Satan included, God has to give them him reign. All right, lest your view of Satan is a bit high, he doesn't act out of the limits God sets on him. Job 1 will, and 2 will make that plain. Uh, but secondly, host refers to earthly armies too. You see, ISIS, uh, any... Any war in nation has never intimidated God. He's Lord of hosts. You've got to understand that, that, that his sovereignty as the world seems to unravel and, and brings great fear to you. God isn't caught off guard. He, he's not guessing. He's not going, oh, I didn't see that coming. You see, he's God. And, and in that, I love J.I. Packer's description of this, we see his transcendence, right? His otherness. And we must, if he's just, you know, the old man in the sky, we're going to feel that. We're going to live in insecurity. But he is transcendent. But if you look at the language here, it's his eminence. It's his with us, his Emmanuel-ness, a word I just now made up. But his being with us, you say, what do you mean? In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away 
and those whom I have afflicted, and the lame I will make the remnant, and those who were cast off, a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. All right, so this is post-birth, post-resurrection, post-ascension. This is return stuff. This is end-of-time stuff. What of the talk of the lame, all of this? It's shepherd imagery. All of it is. Study it. This is shepherd talk. The transcendent, other than, awesome, all-powerful God says, I'll stomp around among the sheep. I'll be their shepherd. Did he? Let's go to John again. We found John this morning to be such a friend of Micah, haven't we? John, quoting Jesus, says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the what class? What kind of shepherd? Good. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. All right, let me pause there for a moment. Jesus is talking. He's got sheep in front of him that are hearing this, but he says, I have other sheep who are not of this fold. Uh, If you're here this morning and you know Christ is your Savior, would you raise your hand? Just slip up your hand. All right, put them down. You're those other sheep. Yeah. I have other sheep who are not of this fold. That's you. That's Enoch who got baptized in Uganda a couple of weeks ago. Wow. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. I think it's five, maybe six times, but I think it's five times that lay it down occurs. This shepherd, how in the world will he bring in the sheep by dying. All right, let's listen to how the sheep are described. Lest we become haughty, lest we think maybe we bring something right to God that he needs from us or, or, or we've got to come and bring whatever he needs. Here's how the, the, the sheep are described. Lame. Did, did you get Micah's description of us? It's, it's, not, it's not the best. Afflicted, driven away cast off. I love that. I love that. Yesterday, Trent and I were trekking, trekking up the road and uh, picked him up from ball practice and he says, he, he plugs in the thing, you know, to my USB. He says, dad, listen to this. So I know as soon as that happens, it's going to be rap. It's going to be loud. And I'll have to concentrate to get the words. All right. And so then he says, this is, uh, 
This is vintage Lecrae. I didn't know he was around long enough to be vintage yet. I think when you're 14, three years and older is vintage. So he turns the song on, and as soon as it starts, surprise, surprise, I know it. I was like, Trent, I love this song. He said, Dad, it's off his first album. Take me as I am. And the whole song goes. And it's about somebody who tries to fix himself up to get rid of all the sin, to bring himself to God, all fixed up and dressed up and made up and acceptable. And as Lecrae writes the song, he says, no, 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 no. That's, that's, not, that's not how you come to God. You come to God with one statement. Take me as I am. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, do you know that everybody here who has come to him came that way? Take me as I am. Uh, incidentally, that's not too far from the polar opposite of Lecrae, George Beverly Shea. And what was his deal? Just as I am. That's how you come. That's how you come if you're in a Billy Graham crusade and George Beverly Shea is leading. That's how you come if you're at a Lecrae concert and Lecrae is singing just as you are. Lame, weak, blind, maimed, cast off, rejected. He's still gathering. He's still gathering the sheep. Even now he is. Hopeful living looks out to see life as it will be, looks up to see God as he is, and looks in to see sin for what it is. That's the third perspective you must have. Micah says, now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you as your counselor perished that pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. Here's what's mind-blowing about Micah's prophecy. So Micah prophesies somewhere between 740, 700 B.C. All right, so he's prophesying then. Uh, between 740 and 700 B.C., uh, Babylon isn't even uh, rising. It is Assyria, which is the world power of the time. Nineveh is the uh, feared city. Uh, Assyria is the feared power. As a matter of fact, Ahaz the king is making an unholy alliance with Egypt out of fear uh, of Assyria. But he says Babylon. Babylon. So, so Babylon is really not known enough to be predicted, number one. Number two, Babylon, um, this did happen, 586 B.C., 100, 115 years later, what he predicted came to be. The other reality is that when Micah's making this prediction, all seems well in Jerusalem. The city's beautiful. The buildings are amazing. The palace gleams with its gold and silver as does the temple. The streets are full. Commerce is great. Life is good. Can I say something to you this morning? Please hear me. If for some reason you think 
I know I'm on the wrong path, but it'll get me to the right place. Never will. It never will. I know I'm sinning, but one day I'll make a hard right turn. No, you never will. You never will. Not unless you surrender to God. You you just won't. You do not live in sin and plan later to repent. That only deepens your sin. Only does. What happened? It's horrifying. Here's what happened. So, 586, King Nebuchadnezzar went north up through Assyria. He came down a campaign down through Israel. He marched into Jerusalem. Zedekiah was king of Israel. He grabbed Zedekiah and he captured all his boys. He took Zedekiah's boys and he lined them up in front of him. And while Zedekiah, the king of Israel, stood there bound, and while all the people watched, King Nebuchadnezzar executed each of his sons one by one by one, and then took and gouged out Zedekiah's eyes so that that would be the last visual memory he had. There's an old saying that says, sin will take you farther than you intended to go, keep you longer than you intended to stay, and cost you more than you ever intended to pay. You say, Jerry, how in the world does that engender hope? Glad you asked. It is when you see yourself and your sinfulness and the shepherd and his love for sinners that you will be most hope-filled. It is. Every person in this room who has come to God by faith in Christ, we saw our sinfulness. And we received God's grace through Christ. Wow. Now many nations are assembled against you saying, let her be defiled and let her eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan that he has gathered them as she's to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron and I will make your hoofs bronze. You shall beat in pieces many people, shall devote their gain to the Lord and their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. What uh, he is saying is Israel, you'll rise again. But in that rising, it will only be because there is a shepherd who is also the Lord of hosts who leads you out. So let's go back, back to verse 5. We had this last week, and here it is again. And, and, and so here you go with the, the need to make a definitive declaration this morning. Verse 5, for all the peoples walk each in the name of its God. All the peoples walk each in the name of its God. We were in Senegal, Africa, January of this year. It's, it's wild over there. There's no electricity where we serve. We camp out, but they have cell phones. Go figure. 
no lie, they charged them with solar power. And so I'm driving around in the desert, riding around with the uh, head of MIS and a couple of other folks when the phone rings. And they said, we need a pastor over here right away. And so I, with the others, go and our medical folks had seen this young boy who had an illness in his stomach. He was five years old. But they discerned that he needed more than medicine. He needed prayer. And so we went out behind this medical hut and there lay that boy on an old medical table that had just been thrown out there. His father was just like you would be, deeply concerned over his hurting son whose stomach was in pain. This had gone on for months. The little boy had lost so much weight in it. Esther, who is the wife of the pastor of the village, has an amazing story of her own of life change and and so uh, they're speaking uh, Wolof, which I don't, of course, speak. And so I'm hearing all of this through an interpreter. We walk up to this little boy, and I'm thinking, we're just going to launch right in and begin to pray for healing. Oh, no. No, no, no. Not that fast. Esther steps up. She starts shaking her finger. I'm like, what's wrong with Esther. And she's shaking her finger like this. And Esther's a joyful, boisterous woman. And so I leaned over to her husband who speaks English. I said, Cherna, what's she saying? He said, Esther has asked if there are any charms on this boy. Have you taken him to the witch doctor? The dad says, yes. Then Esther gets really animated. And I'm listening. And Cherna's interpreting. Esther looked at that dad and said, you either get the witch doctor or you get God. You can't have both. Now, if you want to cut those charms off, we'll pray. Shoot. Like Esther just threw it down, dropped the mic, it's over. And I'm standing there like, I just thought we'd roll up in here, pray a prayer, and, and the Lord's going to do something not so quick. God and witch doctors do not coincide they do not exist. They do not go together. And Esther makes that clear. Somebody pulls a knife out. We cut off the charms from off that little boy. And we surround him and begin to pray that the God of the universe would indeed heal this little boy. Prayed this would happen for the salvation of this village, which has not a church, which has not a work of God in it. That, wow, God, would you heal this boy? Not only only for his good, but for your glory to spread through this village and for us to hear that more have come to faith in Christ in this village. Amen? Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that be wonderful? I would say to you this morning, God is not going to mix with your God's all the other people, they will worship their God's for all the people's walk, each in the name of its God. This is a sociological, verifiable statement. Everybody worships something. But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. There will come a day, if it has not yet come, when you will have to say that. 
as our team comes, we're going to sing a song we've sung already that declares this, but there will be a day, it may be in the thick of your grief, that you'll say, I don't feel like it, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God. It may be in the midst of disappointment. It may be in light of losing your job. It may be in the middle of unfair treatment that you will say, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God.